Hello, hello everyone, and um, and welcome. Uh, we're gonna go ahead and get started. Uh, thank you all uh, on behalf of the Texas Tribune for being here. <clears throat> Sorry, just gonna move this up. Um, thank you all for being here. Um, welcome uh, to the sixth annual Texas Tribune Festival. If you'll excuse me, I have a little script I'm going to read here. Um, uh, and welcome, this is the Mental Health Matters panel, What More Should We Do? Uh, this panel is supported by Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas. Uh, those sponsors and donors underwrite this event. They play no role in determining the event's content, panelists, or line of questions. Um, so I am uh, Edgar Walters. I'm the Health and Human Services reporter for the Texas Tribune. Um, again, thank you for being here. Um, I just ask that everybody take this time to please silence your phones, um, although you're welcome to tweet. We encourage that. If you do, please use the hashtag TTF. Um, and just a reminder, uh, we'll talk up here for about 45 minutes and we'll save the last 15 or 20 uh, for audience questions. I'll give you a little prompt. Uh, please just line up behind the microphone. And with that, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, I am joined here by State Representative For Price. Um, he's a Republican from Amarillo and the chairman of the, uh, select, the House Select Committee on Mental Health. Um, and we have Ann Dunkelberg. Um, she's the Associate Director of the Center for Public Policy Priorities. Um, and she focuses on policy and budget issues related to healthcare access. Uh, and then we have Dr. Andy Keller, President and CEO of the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. Um, and then State Representative Joe Moody, he's a Democrat from El Paso, um, Vice Chairman of the Select Committee on Mental Health and Vice Chairman also of Criminal Juris Jurisprudence. Excuse me. And um, then last but not least, we have State Representative Garnett Coleman, a Democrat from Houston, um, also on the uh, Select Committee on Mental Health and uh, Chair of County Affairs. So. Thank you all for being here. Um, I just wanted to open up kind of like, I, it's Marketplace, the NPR show, right, that does by the numbers. So, so I, I pulled up a couple numbers here. Um, we've got uh, currently, at any given time, about 400 people around the state um, on waiting lists um, for the state hospitals, mental, the state psychiatric hospitals. Um, there are 254 counties in Texas, but of those, 185 did not have a single psychiatrist in 2015. That's according to one survey. Um, and there are 4.6 million Texans, or about 17% of the population, who don't have health insurance, according to the latest census figures. And um, the last figure, according to reputable sources, there have also been 44 hours of committee hearings on the Select Mental Health <laughs> Committee. Um, so Representative Price, uh, as chairman, I figured we'd uh, jump right in with you. Um, what should be, after listening to all these hours of testimony, what do you think should be the state's highest policy priority uh, when it comes to ensuring mental health care? Well, it's, thank you, by the way, and I, I want to commend, you know, the members of the select committee that are sitting up here with me, uh, Vice Chair Moody and, and Chairman Coleman, for the work that they did on the committee, and, and Dr. Keller and, and Ann also were, were very instrumental in helping us uh, not only line up good witnesses, but also receive tremendous amount of testimony, as you mentioned, throughout the course of our, our interim period here. But, you know, a couple of things stand out with respect to priorities, I think, uh, going forward. And what became very clear to our committee through all the testimony that we heard was obviously capacity is a big, big issue. You know, the ability for folks who need mental health care in Texas, one, to recognize it, but two, know where to go, and three, have the ability to access it appropriately. And obviously we do have waiting lists and we do have uh, backlogs in our county jails and our ERs are, are seeing folks over and over again where that can be treated. And, and so early treatment and diagnosis is important. Capacity and building out that capacity is very important. Some of those things you can do short term and some of them are gonna to have to be longer term issues. And I think workforce, and I'll just end there, um, is, is a big part of that because if you don't have an adequate workforce of mental health professionals, you can build out all these other instruments and, and, and not have the ability to staff them correctly. Right, right. Um, I, just for, for those in the audience and people like me who, um, you know, it's, I think 
the word capacity, it's so important, but it can be really hard to visualize. What, it, what does that mean? Does that mean building new state hospitals? Does that mean uh, <laughs> clinics? You know, what, what, are, what are we talking about? I'm going to say all the above because, to be honest, there's a continuum of care that we have to talk about when we're talking about mental health treatment. So there's folks that are in crisis that need immediate care. There's folks that, that have forensic issues that will be uh, put in one of our state hospitals. There's folks that, that might go to a state hospital through a civil commitment. They're there for a shorter period of time. But all of these folks, and then you have behavioral health issues with folks that need treatment and follow-up treatment and, and intensive treatment over, over weeks and months and, and sometimes years. And so uh, we need a continuum of care throughout the state of Texas that we currently just do not have. And so whether that is, you know, there are many pieces to this puzzle. So whether that is starting the process of building out our state hospitals and reorganizing the patient mix in those state hospitals and making sure that that they're modern and that we partner uh, with our communities to make those better. Uh, we can do that. We can also build and, and, out locally some some step down treatment facilities for that counties can access. And I think that's very important. And you think there will be funding for that? I, I'm not naive enough to think that we have all the money in the world this session to spend. And, and certainly there's a lot of competing priorities, but we have to start that ball rolling. And I do think that we have the commitment from state leaders, even in this environment where we've been asking state agencies to cut their budgets by 4%. Uh, I've not had many conversations where folks are willing to drastically cut, you know, some of what we're spending in mental health. Now, for instance, we spend $6.2 billion, including Medicaid spending across 18 different agencies, across five articles of our budget for mental and behavioral health spending. Uh, what I don't want to see is that go backwards in this environment. We need graduate medical education spending. We need to make sure that we're spending uh, the dollars correctly to entice psychiatrists and residency psychiatry uh, uh, development in the state of Texas. You mentioned 185 counties out of the 254 don't even have one psychiatrist in them. We need to do everything we can to build out that workforce. So again, when I talk about capacity and workforce, those are two of the key issues that I think that if we don't focus on, it'll be to our state's detriment. Um, to, to the rest of the, the panel, I would say sort of same question, different wording. Um, but, um, and maybe Ms. Dunkelberg, we'll start with you. You get one policy recommendation for the 2017 legislature. <laughs> what is it? How, what, uh, what's the single largest thing that could be done to improve mental health care and or access? Well, I, no one will be surprised to hear that, you know, access and capacity both require financial access to care. And so in terms of the biggest bang for a buck, the largest number of people, in need who could be affected then clearly getting to some kind of coverage plan that uses those federal Medicaid dollars that are available to us would have a huge impact. And so, and we're talking Medicaid expansion. <laughs> we're talking Medicaid expansion or an 1115 waiver based alternative like some of the deep red states like Indiana have, have pursued. And so, so I've covered in the last couple of weeks several, um, you know, committee hearings at the Capitol and I think a common refrain is that, um, among you know state leaders, particularly Republicans, um, that coverage that coverage is not going to that coverage doesn't cause outcomes to be better. That just giving somebody health insurance um, would just magically solve all of their mental health problems, um, or any other kind of health problem. So every, any kind of health problem you have. Even if you have an insurance card, you have to go to the doctor or the clinic or whatever to get it taken care but, of. But do you think I there think would be tangible, tangible Absolutely. So I think one thing that, that I would point out that's misunderstood probably by a majority of our legislators is that you can have a tremendously serious health care condition, including schizophrenia, bipolar, major depression, and not qualify for Medicaid today. So we have literally hundreds of thousands of Texans with serious mental health diagnoses who are adults, who we are completely letting go the opportunity to give them early access to a consistent source of care and ability to get their prescriptions filled. Instead, we won't give them Medicaid today unless or until they can no longer work at all, and that means they can't sack groceries or run a cash register or sweep a broom, or they're 12 months from death. So we are totally missing that opportunity, and I think if we look to the other states, the, which there are 31 of now, that have done Medicaid expansion, reductions in state GR spending on mental health is one of the first things that they report. That said, maybe if, if comments at the, uh, at the, I was just at the Senate panel that the Tribune was hosting, um, it, 
sounded like from certainly the Senate's point of view, um, Medicaid expansion at this point in time is a non-starter. So if we're bringing things back, I guess, to sort of the, the reality of or realistic expectations for session, um, what, what do you do in a year with, you know, serious fiscal constraints, you know, not so generous looking uh, budget projections? What are, are, are the, is there an easy fix anywhere um, in the budget? I guess anybody is free to. I'd say no, but I mean, I think it's unfortunate that we just gloss over the Medicaid expansion. Um, you know, so many times in the committee, witnesses would be making their presentation and be talking about different solutions. I mean, Chairman Price did a great job at directing people that, you know, we're going to have a large conversation here, uh, but I want you to really distill this down to things that we can do, tangible things that we can do next session to, to move this issue forward. And so the, the witnesses took that very seriously, and many of them would, unfortunately, because of the tone being set, I think mostly you know, on the Senate side, is, is, well, they kind of throw away at the end, well, we could do this with Medicaid expansion, but you know, I, I know that's not feasible. So when all these experts are coming before you and saying this is a large solution on the table, uh, but we're just going to dismiss it because it's not politically feasible, I, to me, for the folks that are suffering through these situations that you know, Ann mentioned, that's not a responsible way to govern, and, and that's unfortunate. And you know, I know that you know, Chairman Coleman has been one of the, the champions of Medicaid expansion. He, I know he can talk more about the fight to do that in a way that works in Texas. Other states have found a way, and, and I know he's been dedicated to, to that negotiation. But, so if we're going to take off the table one of the largest ways that we can actually impact this arena, which is unfortunate, then we need to look at the fact that um, what structure can we build going forward? Like, like the chairman said, there's short term and there's long term. We need to set up structures. We need to start thinking about what this looks like in 40 years. I remember when I talked to, to, to Andy months ago when this committee first came together, we need to start looking at models to discuss mental health in a broader way. And much like you had a, a mission over at MD Anderson uh, to eradicate cancer, we need to start thinking about those, about mental health in, in that way. We need to start broadening out that conversation and creating a framework where we're going to talk about this like physical health issues. We're going to attack it like physical health issues and put that same focus on it. And so some of the structural things we can do, you know, that, that maybe don't carry the bigger price tags, you can look at piloting programs. And so we have, uh, you know, there's a couple ISDs that came to us and talked about co-locating, um, you know, health facilities on their campus where they had low-performing campuses and they were going to treat both physical and mental health. So let's look at expanding some of those programs in larger ISDs. We've done in the past uh, to try and increase, uh, you know, providers to, you know, look at uh, debt, uh, debt payment for psychiatrists, you know, expand the residency programs for them. So th those are the things structurally we need to start laying out. While we may not be able to solve them in a two-year down budget, we need to start putting that framework in place that shows what this looks like going forward, partnering opportunities between institutes of higher, uh, higher learning and a state hospital, you know, those types of things. And, and I think another way to think about... Um, if, you know, if all of this is being framed as a cost issue, right, if cost is the constraining factor, one way to cut back on costs is to have fewer people who are needing this care in the first place, talking about things like preventive um, measures. Do, do you realistically think that there's going to be a move toward that, those sorts of preventive services, or even, you know, talking about services like supportive housing or anything? Do Realistically, in a tight budget year, will Will those sort of fiscal arguments win the day at the legislature, or what can we realistically expect to see, Representative Coleman? Well, the, the folks in Bear County who have done a really good job of reducing the census in their county jail by 800 beds by doing smart things. So, for example, one of the main things they do is they have uh, a center where they bring people in mental health crisis, where the officers, uh, both sheriffs and police officers, bring, bring uh, folks, and uh, that works, clearly. And it also works if uh, somebody's cousin brings them too. It doesn't have to be a, a sheriff. We don't have those types of facilities around around the state or policies that do what I so stupidly call pre-pre-trial diversion. Uh, but 
but because it just makes sense to me, because that's how I think. Uh, the, the, the world, uh, those are things that don't require necessarily a budgetary deal. It requires, as they say, the reason they're successful is because of their uh, coalition that comes together to actually do these things, and it's not split off into silos. So, so for all the counties, I mean every county, that, that needs to exist. And we do have some seed money in the budget that was put in in 2013 for those purposes so, so that we don't have to find that money. Uh, the other piece is this, this is a real simple one. And, um, and I keep harping on this because it never made any sense. Now, uh, Representative Neistat, who's out, out there, got it done for juveniles, but we end someone's uh, Medicaid SSI payment if they're arrested. Well, who's going to get arrested with, in, and put in jail with their mental illness? Someone who's on SSI and has a, 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 a diagnosed disability and a mental illness. Well, we had a bill last session to move through where you would only, that SSI and that Medicaid would only be suspended while they're in jail as opposed to ended. Well, we couldn't get it passed because we couldn't get it through that knucklehead Senate. And, and so, so the, the point of the matter is there are things that we can do that make a lot of sense, uh, that don't cost a lot, that would reduce the cost overall for everything we're doing uh, that, that needs to, to be done. And the only reason I say that, you know, I, I, it just made no sense to, to kill that bill. And there are other senators who have said just as much. Representative Price. Yeah, I just wanted to add uh, the, the you know, likelihood, especially in a, in a tight fiscal situation like we're facing going into the next session, of, of Austin coming up with an idea to attack um, crises or dilemmas and problems that exist throughout the entire state of Texas is, is not realistic and probably a one-size-fits-all solution is not always appropriate anyway. So what I would like to see, uh, which would cost less from a state perspective, is create incentives for local communities to address the problems that are most prevalent in their communities with some state help. So for instance, like we did with veterans last session in SB 55, we created an environment where the state put up money and then local communities could seek that money to, for matching dollars to create solutions to the problems they were facing. So for instance, if we're gonna address workforce or capacity issues and, and a community, for instance, Harris County or, or Dallas County, you know, and they've got an urban area with a lot of bodies that may need more intensive treatment without as much uh, available bed space or, or professionals and they need incentives, they'd probably be willing to step up to the plate and, and do that. And regionally, some small counties might not be able to do it on their own, but they may be able to work together to create something through a local mental health authority to do the same thing. So I think we are in an environment where there's still some real positive possibilities. We can work together. But a one-size-fits-all solution is probably not the best thing that we can offer at this time for some of those issues. Dr. Kelly. Well, you know, I've just been listening because this is great. If we could just do what these folks have said to do, I think we'll be able to move forward. And even, you know, the controversy, I'm not actually allowed because we're nonpartisan to use the E word, you know, the, that expansion word. But the, the point you made, Ann, well, no, I'm going to tell you. Let me get into it. Um, because, well, because we, we, we haven't done a study on it yet. Okay. As soon as we do a study, if someone wants study. us to do a study, we'd be happy to do that. Do a study. But I, I think, I'll, I'll tell you, everybody agrees that we have to continue the 1115 waiver. I mean, nobody, everybody, I think, could come together around that, that how do we find some solutions? And there and, are solutions under the waiver that other states have done, like Adam was saying, to move it. And the 1115 waiver, just for the audience's benefit and... Is, uh, it's a, it's a permission... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's basically permission from the federal government to, to make some changes to the Medicaid rules and to, to do some things our own Texas way. And we got... With a lot of money through. attached. We got, with a lot of money attached, billions of dollars a year, and we got a very big Texas way through that that we're, we need to figure out how to keep that the feds would like us to narrow a bit and move into being more like the rest of the country. But I think there's some middle ground there that hopefully after the election people can begin to think about because it is probably going to, after the federal election, because the, the federal climate I think is going to be dramatically different depending on what happens there. But the point I guess that I think is most hopeful that, that folks have been talking about is, is what Vice Chairman said about having a, a framework for the future. That this is not something that even if we had all the money in the world, we could solve in one session. We actually asked all the directors of training um, at the residency, slot, uh, residency programs of our medical schools around the state last session at the beginning we said if you had infinite dollars how many new residents could you bring in 
Um, and we were hoping they would say something like 100 because we, we actually have about 400 total that we're training at any one time and about 90 that come out every year. The grand total they told us was 13. And we're like, we were disappointed. We we're like, okay, why? Why 13? And the reason was those folks need faculty and they need facilities. So unless we're going to do something that over time builds those sorts of partnerships with our medical schools, with our academic medical centers, with our providers to create the faculty and the facilities to do that out, um, we're not going to be able to move forward to address this. So it's going to take a multi-year sort of plan that I think is going to have to have the kind of things that Chairman Price was just talking about, about being able to build in these sorts of partnerships between the state and local areas to address priority populations like the 4,000 children who are in our foster system, who we as Texans are responsible for them, who many of whom ended up, we just found out in the paper yesterday, are stuck in a former closed down uh, state juvenile facility. Um, we, if we're going to make solutions for them, we're going to have to do that in every town across the state. And it's not for a lack of Medicaid. Those children have Medicaid, and we actually have an excellent Medicaid plan for those children. But what we lack are providers. We only have enough providers, and it's not the individual providers. We have plenty of individual providers to serve this population. We lack, there's not enough credentialed agencies. So our children's hospitals, Depelchin, uh, uh, Clarity down in, in uh, San Antonio are not allowed to provide the rehab services that those children need because they don't meet the credentialing criteria. So we can make some changes that would actually take providers we have to begin to serve those children. And, and this is, yeah, this is the exact point I was hoping to get at is, is shortages of providers, of beds, you, what you name it in the mental health care system, the word shortage comes up uh, quite a bit. Um, can, I, can I just kind of oh. interrupt here? Yeah, children have Medicaid, which means they have a payment. The question is, what's the rate being paid and whether or not that's adequate enough for people to serve them? The other part is that people who would be Medicaid but non-disabled in terms of mental health, they're, they're just SOL except through our state dollars or local dollars. So there has to be a... a, a this has to come together to create the money to even build a place that's a, a hospital or a medical school for mental health because as we heard in testimony most of the people will be on Medicaid so if that there's not enough money that comes from their reimbursement for treatment then those institutions won't be sustainable well and it's a good point so so I've um, you know I've been I spent sort of the past year having to write about or getting to write about excuse me this um, <laughs> Um, an ongoing fight over Medicaid payments, um, also for children, specifically relating to therapy services, often for children with disabilities. Sort of distinct, um, but the, the, a separate question from the mental health question, right? But certainly a long, protracted battle over cutting these rates. I wonder, um, has the legislature learned? That was a 2015 move. In 2017, has the legislature learned anything from that? Was this battle so costly and so full of headaches that you that we can expect not to cut Medicaid rates or or even increase them or is that just uh, off the table I'm not the legislature so I'll jump in and speak up and say that I think one of the things that was most distressing about that particular instance um, of a policy and rate change that was driven through something that was written into the budget and fairly late in the budget process uh, was that after you know 20 years of watching budgets get passed and many cuts to Medicaid over time, was that uh, that was uh, it was too specific. It was there was a, a long, very directive uh, uh, list of cuts that had to be made, what time they had to be made by, where they had to be made, what the dollar amounts used to be. It was completely inconsistent with the previous format of that that budget approach, which was to have a writer that lists 20 different ways you can save money. Uh, and it did not, it tied the agency's hands in terms of their ability to say, wait a minute, this research that Texas A&M did may have some good information in it, but it didn't look at all the questions and, and it's not enough. And we need as an agency to be able to adjust it and say, okay, maybe we can save this much money, but that's not enough. So it was, I would just say that particular approach was very unsuccessful, and I hope we won't see it again. Right. Well, and, and I don't want to relitigate the you know the 2015 fight, but but Representative Price, you have been you, you've been in the nitty gritty of the article crafting the Article Two budget. Um, just what what is your feel right now as far as Medicaid rates 
go, is there any appetite to spend money to pay providers more? Yeah, that, that depends who you talk to. Um, and honestly, I think there, we have to take a hard look at the rates, the rate structure. Um, you know, with respect to the therapies, um, access is a big issue, which we, I think we have to go back and take a look at because, you know, it's one thing to cut rates. It's another thing for rates to be cut, and then it cuts off the access to kids, especially, and I've always been very concerned with children who are living in rural communities who have a, a significant travel component built into the therapies that they're receiving. And so that is, you know, if, if the rate reduction ends up reducing access for those children, then, you know, that cost savings is not, you know, that shouldn't be the priority. So we, we will have to go back, I think, and take a, or I hope we will take a very hard look at that. You know, in the House budget, we also tried at least um, initially to increase very small rate increase to our primary care physicians. And we have to continue to foster a network in this environment. We may disagree on whether or not Medicaid expansion is the right way to go. In fact, you know, a lot of us do disagree about that. But the reality is we have to make sure that in this environment where our physicians, we're less, I think, than 30% now, physician taking new Medicaid patients. If we don't continue to pay uh, our, our physicians and, and create rates for hospitals and providers that are adequate, then we will find ourselves in, in trouble. So I think that has to be part of the analysis you go through with the Article II um, equation. If I may, because this is a unique program, and I think a lot of people, this is uh, IDEA, and it's for every kid, every child that has these developmental dis delays. And so some are paid for with general revenue 100%, and those would be the folks who are above the Medicaid, uh, uh, above the Medicaid income. But really, it should be funded out of the TEA budget and not out of the Article II budget. Well, and, and I think there's some overlap here also with when we're talking about mental health access and, 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 and things. Because you're saying TEA, like education. Because budget, it, like the reason out. we do it is because of how a child is educated. We and, don't do it because and, we're treating something else. This is about to make sure that children can move forward with their eyesight, their ears, their right, uh, right, right. Whole, whole, whole nine yards. Uh, so I, I wonder, there have also been um, a number of pilot programs in schools looking at telemedicine. Um, there have been. Um, obviously a category that extends beyond just mental health care, but I think also plays a very important role. Um, but, but realistically, as far as scale goes, I, I'm curious, is, um, do you see telemedicine as an actual realistic way to expand um, you know, provider, the, the, the number of providers and access in a meaningful way? Yes. Absolutely. I mean, there's the research shows it, it works as well to do mental health service delivery, actually a lot of healthcare, but certainly mental health. And actually works better in some cases. I mean, there's actually some evidence that shows that it's actually easier to talk to somebody when you're beamed across than opposed to having to sit across from in a room. So, and there's really actually pretty good uh, laws allowing for that. I think the issue, and I think this cuts across Medicaid as well as commercial insurance, mm -hmm. is that we actually have pretty good benefit designs. I mean, even in Medicaid, the work that was done since the last session to address some of the network adequacy requirements, I think begin to put in some frameworks where our Medicaid managed care organizations who are at risk, I mean, they're, they have a set amount of money to provide all the care that folks need to begin to hold them accountable for that. Our commercial insurance, we have some of the strongest parity laws in the, in the nation here in the state of Texas, but the enforcement of that, what, what we're able to do as individuals, where do we go? And I think one of the great things you all found out in the select committee was that the Texas Department of Insurance actually only monitors a very narrow slice, only the big group, large group market, doesn't monitor self-insured uh, organizations, which are our largest employers, and it also only monitors sort of benefit descriptions about whether or not you get a certain number of sessions or not. It doesn't look at the things like my provider doesn't provide mental health care because they had to actually sign a separate contract that they didn't know about. Or my provider wasn't able to be in the network because they've closed their network and there's a lot of people who are dead or no longer in Texas who are in their network and they never cleaned it up, but there's no enforcement. And unless we have an easy way for Texans to say, hey, I have a benefit and I'm not getting care for that, um, then we're not going to know the scope of the problem. I think right now there's, people are, are suffering silently, though I understand they wrote to committee members and they, they call me all the time, but being able to have someone at TDI who would be able to take, just take the complaints, just make a single place where Texans could register when they're not getting uh, their son with schizophrenia, their daughter with depression, their child in school who needs access to telehealth, to be able to register those complaints I think would be a wonderful step forward just to document things. Dr. Keller makes a good point because I think our coverage 
is better than most people actually think it is um, for mental health services. And, and certainly there's improvement that can be made, but enforcing parity um, is, is really important across a, um, a, a large spectrum of folks who are seeking um, you know, treatment. And, and, and when there's a problem, uh, with that, um, they often drop the ball and don't pursue it. And, and there's not a place, often, for instance, TDI, where they can go and say, you know, this is this is happening over and over again, and we need some some light shown, some transparency on that. Because at the end of the day, if we can't do anything else because of all the varying jurisdictions over these policies, I would love to at least shame some of the health plans into providing what they are obligated to provide to the folks who are seeking hmm. treatment. Shame. What about fine them? Uh, should should they have to pay? For pay when, when there's a lack of parity? I think the, what was uncovered in the, the hearings in the select committee was that TDI was very straightforward, that they literally lack the authority to enforce some of the provisions of parity, many of which come out of federal law. And we haven't taken the steps to harmonize state law with federal law. So, I, you know, we don't have the structure there to even fine anybody is, is the is is the issue right now. And, and the legislature could give them that. Well, exactly. They could give them that. And, this, and these are the things that we're talking about. We're talking about building out a structure going forward. If we're going to start doing better in the arena of mental health, then we need to give TDI the tools, even if it's a narrow, uh, a narrow part of what's covered in Texas, at least like the chairman said, you're going you're gonna to start moving the conversation in, in that direction. And so these are the things that even in a tight budget year, um, you can start setting up these structures so you can move forward. I think that's, I think that's, that's, it's incumbent upon us to at least get the ball that far down the road this session. Um, going back to provider shortages, um, you know, we heard any number of ideas. There, there have been tuition reimbursement um, programs trying to get people who study to become a mental health provider. You can pay back some of their costs of doing that if they go to an underserved area. Um, telemedicine, you know, maybe if somebody lives out in a rural area and they can just get on the phone, get care. Um, but it seems like there have been, you know, every session there's this question of access, this question of access and shortages. Um, and still there's this problem. I wonder, is 2017 the year to look at scope of practice issues and, and having more different types of providers able to Well, you know, so the caveat here is my father and father-in-law were physicians. So, but I also so would knew, they agree? I also knew, no. <laughs> I also knew people who were nurse midwives or advanced practice nurses and other, other areas of, of health providers that did a very good job. Our state needs to, to make sure that our clinical teams include the, 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 that somebody can practice to the level of their credential. And we will do a whole lot better if we do that. At the, I'm going to do a plug for the University of Houston. They have both a doctoral psychology program and an MSW program. Those are mental health professionals. There are other graduate schools that have LPCs, licensed professional counselors, marriage and family therapists. And all I hear all the time is about psychiatrists. I love them. We'll never build our way out of that. Can I finish? Thank you. Oh. So we'll never build our way out of that. And there's been reluctance uh, to make sure that the scope fits the individuals. Thank you. Dr. Kelly, I'd love to have you chime in just quickly. I just want to, before you, I'm going to give you a chance to speak, uh, just want to encourage, um, in the next couple minutes, we'll take audience questions. So get them ready and line up at the microphones. So I think scope is important, but I think we actually think there's one that's more important, and that's to be able to lower some of the barriers to, to participation. So for example, we are one of only eight states that has no fast track authority or reciprocity to allow psychiatrists moving to Texas to practice. So I'm talking to Dr. Strakowski yesterday, who's the new chair of the Dell uh, you know, the Dell Hospital, the psychiatry department, he can't practice psychiatry in our state yet. Unlike when he moved to his last state and he just had to give him money, he's got to sit down and actually take his, his exams again. And uh, I've been living in the state for two years as a psychologist. I haven't found time yet to take the exams to get licensed here. I could do a little bit of extra clinical work if I did. We have some of the highest barriers to entry of any state. And if we could just create some fast track authority, and we don't have to even do it forever. We could just do it for a few years to try to, I mean, we're very good at stealing, you know, uh, other companies, you know, luring them here to live here in Texas. We need to do take the same tried and true things we've done for industry and do them for medical care. And that I think mean we don't need to deal with the. No, it's and it's an yeah, answer. It's an absolutely. And. I want to make sure it's an and. It's all of the above. We we this is a this is an workforce emergency in the state. People are dying over this, so we absolutely have to do everything. Um, so the other part of shortages uh, that we we discussed earlier is it's not just providers; it's also beds. Um, 
And building beds, especially on the state's dime, can be an expensive proposition. Uh, this week we heard a proposal from State Senator Kirk Watson um, to rebuild the Austin State Hospital, which is not in good shape, um, as with many state hospitals, I think it's fair to say, um, sort of in partnership with um, you know, local uh, medical schools, the like. Um, how do you see the state um, in, increasing the number of beds and also paying for it? You know, one, one thing that I like about what Senator Watson is doing is um, he's, he's really echoing some testimony we received from Dr. Lakey, who was former um, commissioner at the Department of State Health Services and now works for the UT system, the Health Science Center in, in Northeast and in Tyler. And, and really forming these academic partnerships is important. And, and I do believe um, that you're going to have a better model of care and delivery system when you do that. And, and it can't be done at once, but I invite anybody that's never toured a state hospital, go see one, because some of them are very, very old. They're aged. They've got tremendous um, maintenance responsibilities and costs, and, and a lot of the buildings can't be used anymore. And, and they're certainly not a place. One of the impressions that I had personally going through Rusk State Hospital was that if you were a patient there, it would be very difficult to receive effective treatment because you'd be so worried about so many other things, it would be really hard. And so when you have a room, you know, a third of the size of this room, you have six patients in it, and, you know, they might all be suffering from and, and are suffering from severe mental illness, uh, it's hard. And, and they have plumbing problems and deterioration problems and all this going on. So we have to start that ball rolling. Uh, my, my opinion is we have to have a, a deliberate plan where we start the process, and whether it be um, through uh, use of available funds, through, through bonded indebtedness, where we go out years. I mean, we have to start that process because there are many of these hospitals. There's 10. The Canon Design Group report that came out several years ago indicated there's five on that list that have an immediate need for replacement. So, if, you know, you can't do it all at once. It's impossible. It would cost over a billion dollars. We just can't do it. But at the same time, we start the longer process of building out our state hospitals, doing it deliberately, doing it correctly, making it, you know, state of the art, as he's proposing here. Um, I think we also have to privately contract out some beds and make sure we're doing what we can to fill in that infrastructure. And, and really, again, I go back to that continuum of care. Let's look at all levels, not just the forensic and civil commitments in a state hospital, but the other treatment options that, you know, that need to be addressed. And so, we just have to start that ball rolling. It's going to be one of those costs that is so high that if we don't do it if we, one piece at a time, we'll never eat the whole elephant. I see some nods in agreement if anybody else wants no, to I chime mean, in. Well, I especially agree on the continuum side because I think, you know, yes, we need to repair hospitals. Yes, we need to have hospitals. But the reality is people are in about a two to three year period if there's someone who's using the hospital repeatedly of treatment need. It's going to take two to three years for them to really get stabilized to the point where they're not repeatedly using the jail, the hospital, the emergency room. We're never going to have folks for two to three years in hospitals. There's 40,000 of them. We have 2,000 state hospital beds. Um, so the only way we're going to be able to do that is to build out that kind of continuum and to be able to, and I love the idea of partnering with communities on that because the biggest, one of the biggest impacts is on county jails and on county budgets and I think a, a state local partnership to address that larger continuum would be a wonderful thing to pair with a state hospital strategy. Particularly since I believe the majority of our beds are dominated by forensic placements or people waiting to be restored to competency so they can even go to trial to the point where people with any other need that's not driven by criminal justice activity, there's almost no access at all. So the, the cost effectiveness of intervening in that cycle is uh, going to be pretty high. I'd like to go ahead and open the floor up to audience questions. hope to get to as many as possible. Just um, please introduce yourself as you're asking the question. And um, to quote my boss, just please make sure your question ends in a question mark, or I will have to cut you off. Um, my name is Bryn Hersfeld. I'm a junior. I'm a junior in high school, and I have a brother who a 19-year-old brother with moderate to severe autism. And I've read that on that in 2014, the Autism Speaks organization released a study that said that the lifetime care of an individual with autism can cost from 1.4 to 2.4 million dollars. So are there, what do you think we can do to reduce the cost for families who have to deal with this for a very, very long time? Or even just to be able to cut through some of the red tape that, um, prevents 
quick access to services needed by these individuals. I'll, I'll make one quick plug. Uh, it, it's, uh, we do have a, a provision in our um, Texas budget proposal uh, for, the, for the upcoming session to at least allow Medicaid, Texas Medicaid, to move into paying for uh, applied behavioral therapies. They use a broader term than we're used to hearing, but, uh, and that's been a problem, that we're kind of behind the curve in making those available. And of course, that mostly uh, is, is for younger Texans, but we, we do have some adults that we apply to too. But that's just a piece of what you're talking about, so I'll see if some of our colleagues have more to add to that. Well, it's, it's where we have a problem overall when something doesn't fit in a particular box. So you would need both medical treatment, educational support, and uh, care support. And that generally applies to individuals that are uh, IDD. Uh, and, and so we should look at including uh, individuals and families that have uh, children and, and growing children with uh, autism in those in those programs both state and federal um, and and that's the kind of help help that families need uh, so you know we talk about brain disorders and the like uh, but it's 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 really tough uh, and I think you, the silence you hear is uh, is that we don't we have been fighting to work on you know to find some solutions over the years and we just have not done that Thank you. Yeah, the back microphone next, thank you. My name is Kathy Stout and I'm from El Paso. And I wonder if any of your leadership work relates to mandating that local police departments and sheriff uh, deputies be trained to identify potential mental health interactions because if people don't comply, uh, they might be um, over-policed. And I, I suppose the same question could extend to uh, prisons and jails. Will they be assessed ahead of time uh, to avoid even greater mental health problems in prison? Okay. Let me, uh, about, I don't know, five, six years ago, I passed a bill that requires every peace officer who goes through their pre peace officer licensing at now what's called TCOL, uh, that they, get, they have 16 hours of training. I think most people don't know that. Uh, they already know how to do at least basic de-escalation. Uh, one of the bills, or one of the measures I'll propose is that we take that to 40. Now, does that create a crisis intervention team? No, but everyone, including the police chief or the sheriff, will have that training. So in any circumstance where, where they are, uh, they can practice, practice those, uh, practice those, those, uh, 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 you know, the, practice that. Yeah, I wanna just add to that. and, and if we're going to, you know, we, we give people tools to use. Um, I think we saw this in, in the Sandra Bland case. There's tools that we use in the county jail. I know you had extensive hearings on this issue. Uh, tools are only as good, um, you know, are only good if we use them correctly. That tool that was in their hands that day, had it been used correctly, would have been okay. But we don't have the, we don't have people utilizing the training, the tools that we're giving them in the, in the right way or in the smartest way possible. Those, that screening tool's been changed and I think it's a better screening tool now, uh, but, but it's one that we have, to, we have to stay vigilant on. And our detention officers and our correctional officers, the, the interface that they have with individuals uh, dealing with mental and behavioral health issues is, is great. And, and we need to make sure that we expand on their training. Make sure that they're partnering with, the, you know, when they, where they've got an LMHA, that they're partnering with them in their training up front. They're in the academies. Uh, both on the SO side and the PD side, because they're going to, and we know, I mean, 30% of people incarcerated have had a diagnosis. So they're going to interact with folks that have, have, have a diagnosis. So we need to be in the academy. So we need to be doing that type of training in, in a way, in a way that, um, that, that allows them to build on that training going forward. They do that in other arenas. You know, and whether it be the sciences applied to, to, to prosecution of X, Y, or Z, we need to do it in this as well. And I totally agree. The challenge is people would assume that nobody's being trained unless there's a CIT team that's been created wherever it is that they work, but that's just not the truth. So the, the excuse is, well, we don't have the money to put together a CIT team. Well, you ha they already have the training. Take advantage of what's around you in order to uh, create that internally. 
because the training has occurred. The, the most important thing is that the officer know what to do. So we've looked at this, and, and uh, Texas actually leads the nation in this because of the work of, of Representative Coleman of, of, and others on this to really put those sorts of training things in place. I think the, in addition to, and I think it's an excellent point uh, that Vice Chairman Moody makes about being able to, we, there's more to do. I mean, obviously there's more to do in training. It's not standardized across our 254 counties. However, I think, you know, we, I'm from Dallas and we had a very hard summer in Dallas. And I think uh, Chief Brown of the Dallas Police Department said it really clearly in, in a lot of what we heard after those events in July, that we ask police to do too much. We can't expect our police to do all this. And we have to put resources in place to help them. And one thing that we can't do right now, a police officer cannot turn a person with mental illness who's not you know, posing a danger, doesn't need to have active supervision by the police over to an ambulance driver to allow that ambulance, like they would with another medical condition, to take them to a hospital. That officer has to go with them until they get to the emergency room. One simple rule that we'd like to see change, one statute, and we're hoping there will be some work on this, would be just to allow the officer to have the discretion to let an ambulance driver take them. And there's a lot of things like that that leverage our broader medical infrastructure to help something that we've too often in this state have relegated to law enforcement. The front microphone, please. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Greg Hanch. I work as public policy director for the Texas affiliate of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI Texas. I wanted to get some perspective from the panel on how do we address mental illness earlier in the life stage? It seems like a lot of the time we're waiting until it gets to stage four, until it, it evolves into a crisis situation and law enforcement has to get involved at that point. But how do we, how do we move this back? And what, what do we see as far as when we do make an early intervention when a person is experiencing mental illness, what might be some positive outcomes that, that arise when, say, a person, a young person here, maybe at the University of Texas, is experiencing an episode of psychosis? And rather than intervening at the third or fourth episode of psychosis, what can we do the first time that we see that happen? That's for anyone. Yeah, I, you know, Greg, first of all, thank you for your participation over the last, you know, eight months um, you know, with our committee and the work that, that NAMI Texas has done. I appreciate that, and the input you all have given our committee has been very useful. Um, with respect to your question, um, there's no, no doubt that early diagnosis and treatment is effective and, and very effective. And I think that um, Dr. Keller could probably give you statistics. I'm sure you've seen some, too, that would back that up. And, and you know, some of the testimony that we heard and I think was very interesting was uh, suggestions and ideas like integrating, you know, um, screenings uh, at, at wellness checkups for, for adolescents and, and young adults, you know, when they're visiting their physician. So many times what we, what we discovered is people who, who may or may not know that they are, um, you know, suffering from a mental illness um, won't seek out a mental health professional. They'll go directly to their primary care physician and they'll just volunteer information that might indicate that there is more of a, a severe problem for them to seek treatment for. And so um, just implementing that would be a good step in the right direction, I think, for at least early treatment diagnosis. I think, um, I think it was Vice Chair Moody that referenced um, a couple of school districts are actually integrating you know, um, mental screenings and treatment and mental health professionals inside their school counseling centers and nursing centers. So when a student goes, for instance, to seek help or have questions, they're not necessarily going to the mental health counselor or, or, you know, a licensed clinical social worker that's there in a special office. They're going to the nurse's office. And so no one really knows. And so there's, there's those components that I think are, are useful and, and ought to be piloted to see, um, you know, things like truancy rates went down, graduation rates went up in those schools. I mean, it was really good indications that that was a positive thing that was working. And so I think um, that's good. And, and on college campuses, we just had a hearing about higher ed and, and uh, mental health and and the things that are, are more prevalent now than, you know, again, I think mental health generally is treated differently um, or, or behavioral health overall is being treated much better than it was five, ten years ago. We still have a long way to go. But if you have access to, um, you know, hotlines 24-7, if you've got counseling centers and folks on campuses, now, you know, I passed a bill last session saying that information has to be on a dedicated page for each university's website. So if you or your roommate have a problem, you don't necessarily have to call somebody. Hopefully you can go online and get the information and seek treatment. But I think it, it's a number of things. Um, those are just some, some ideas and suggestions that we heard testimony on at, at an early stage of this um, process a few months ago. 
And, and again, I mean, it, there's no question statistically that early um, diagnosis and treatment uh, will keep these folks from revolving in and out of our uh, ERs uh, that are that are needing treatment and, and uh, the super utilizers, the folks that, that might uh, develop more chronic and severe mental illness if they're not treated early, um, certainly that's, as we've all discussed, um, been a big problem for our counties and our, our medical centers and our hospital districts. So the more we can do in that regard, the more emphasis we can make from all fronts, I think will have a lasting benefit for us. Could I just underscore how profound I think that would be to actually make screening like that universal for children ages 12 and older? Because we didn't use to screen for cholesterol. We didn't use to screen for cancer. We didn't use to screen for blood uh, sugar levels. And every time I go to the doctor, I have to do that. And every time I go to the doctor, I have to have an argument about whether my cholesterol test means anything, because it's actually about a 50-50 shot about whether a cholesterol chance predicts heart disease. We have five-minute screens that can be done in the waiting room, doesn't take any doctor time, that have an 80% chance of detecting depression. And when I've talked to hospitals and providers around, they all know that. They're, they're, there's actually a lot of efforts to try to move this out. But until we decide that we're going to do that in 100% of cases, and we're not going to let any child get out of there, just like we wouldn't let them get out of there without doing the other screenings that are required, that change, I think, is the single biggest change we could make. And it's going to take will, because when I tell providers that, what they'll say is, well, what can we do then if we find they have depression and we don't have anywhere to refer them? And I'm like, well, would you rather not know? I mean, you know, I, you know that we have to confront that side. And it's an important question, because it puts the provider in a bind. But we can't treat all cancer now. We can't treat all diabetes. But we want to. And until we make the decision as a state that we want to find every case of depression, we're not going to be able to go down this road. So that's why I think what the chairman said is just so profound and is a potential game changer. And, and to add to that, that we take full advantage of the laws that have been passed on identifying children in schools who uh, may have a, the beginnings or, or, or intervene in mental health conditions and make sure that that's actually doing what it's supposed to be doing. Thank you so much. The back mic, please. First of all, I just want to say this is one of the most productive policy discussions I've heard all day. So thank you all <laughs> for, for what you've been saying. Um, my name is Katie McMullen. I work for a global health nonprofit called Health Volunteers Overseas. Um, and we are working on building up health workforce capacity overseas. Um, and while we do see that resource shortages, budget constraints overseas are a huge part of the workforce deficiencies, um, when it comes to access, we also know that um, Politics can play a role in that um, certain healthcare specialties get a little territorial. Um, so when we're talking about expanding access in rural areas, going cross specialties and expanding that, um, are there barriers that we're encountering in, in this coming legislative session? Are there groups or, or um, barriers to making some of these changes that you're talking about? Is it just budget or are we dealing with other things? And if so, you know, how do we how do we overcome that? I mean, it was referenced kind of earlier, talking about scope of practice, and, and Chairman Coleman talked about you know psychiatry, psychology, and, and what can psychologists do. And you know, if I look across the border into New Mexico, psychologists can do a few different things that they can't do in Texas. I've had a couple of them come tell me that are constituents of mine saying, "I maybe time for me to go to New Mexico so I can use my education." Uh, to the fullest extent. Now, I don't know if what they're doing in New Mexico or Louisiana or, or other states that have done different things it would work in Texas, but uh, the conversation is not happening. There's no conversation. And so that's, that's a part of the problem. So if, if, there's, not, if there's not a conversation to, to what that would look like in Texas and it's, it's a non-starter, then you never get that ball rolling to begin with. And I think, I mean, that's one of the broader ones. And I know it's been run up the flagpole before in I Texas, but yeah, so, so, uh, so I think some people may do that again. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, that's, you know, it's, it, it is, it, you know, they became, they become turf battles. This is not the only arena in which they happen though. Okay, so this is where we need to work on is scope of practice is not a bad term. We have to expand scopes of practice in order to meet the needs of, uh, of Texans. So the problem is whenever we say scope, people get all nervous. Why? <laughs> I mean, the reality is we're trying to get people health care. And we're trying to get th those individuals. So for example, if somebody has a diagnosed mental illness, so they're going to get their medications more than likely from a psychiatrist with a 15-minute uh, med management update every, every month. But if they need psychotherapy, the likelihood 
that there's a partnership between the psychiatrist in the MSW or the doctor of psychology or the LPC, that exists, that's a need. And many of the disorders we have a problem with, medication doesn't work anyway. You have to have long-term cognitive uh, 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 therapy. So I, I, the re that's the reason why I continue to push on this is because we have individuals who can do more. They're just not, we, we don't allow it, except for with the supervision of a doctor. I think we need to, I'm sorry. No, this is a small point, just that whenever we uncover something like a scope issue or some of the other things we've talked about, we also have to make sure we are dealing with the related issue of whether an insurance company is required to pay that provider, or whether Medicaid is required to pay that provider, because if we just take that first step and we don't, don't uh, follow up with the payers, then you, we still have the same And barrier. so on psychologists, we actually now reimburse uh, master's level psychologists under Medicaid who are doing their internships with doctor, psychologists that have doctors of psychology. I think, that, I think that's right, and we have to continue to do that. I was going to say one ally on this I think could be the business community. We've been working with the Texas Business Group on Health and they're very concerned about this and Texas Association of Business has come out on these things as well. Employers are put in a bind when they can't get their employees health care or when they have to pay for a higher level specialty when they could have a lower level specialty doing it. So I think that there could be some real uh, support around that potentially. I think we have time for one more short question at the front microphone. Hi, my name is Megan Hansen, and I'm a student here at UT. And the reason I actually came to this panel is because of Haruka and kind of the, I don't know if y'all know the girl that was murdered yes. on campus by a boy who was 17 years old and in the foster care system and had a history of mental health issues. So I guess the question that I have for y'all is how are you going to hold this foster care system more accountable? Because you keep talking about not having the resources, but you already have the infrastructure to kind of do it. So it, would it be like an education incentive like y'all are kind of like talking about right now, education programs? Or how are you going to amend the systems you already have so that these kinds of people don't fall through the cracks? Well, the County Affairs Committee has been doing hearings on the cha challenges that we have in the foster care system. Uh, right now our system is broken. And, uh, and so the direction that's been taking, taken to actually repair it would take too long if we use the, the, the direction that's already uh, happening. The other piece is in the future we have even worse problems because most, I would say, a large majority or a large group of children are out of the home because of substance abuse by the parent. And so because of that, if we don't do something about substance abuse, that child is going to stay in substitute care until uh, that person gets off crack, heroin, or meth. And you know how hard it, no, maybe you don't. It's very hard to get, <laughs> get off of crack, heroin, and, and meth. Uh, so so the, the, I think it's important that we've taken some time to look at what are the causes of, of these, these, these challenges and how we, one, deal with the crisis, but two, do exactly what the, the select committee is doing and, and because of Chair Price uh, doing the budgets uh, on health and human, look at how we can do a similar thing uh, during this session with, uh, with CPS because the problem's only gonna get worse because the demographics are changing. It's not, you know, we, we view children in foster care as certain ways. Well, you know, the opioid addiction and, and heroin, you know, they're different group uh, of people, and it's only going to get worse if we don't if we don't deal with with those root problems and that intervention. So I I, I promise you that in the work that we're doing as the County Affairs Committee, working with uh, the chairman here and also Chairman Raymond in their lead roles, uh, that we're going to come with with something that 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 makes your desire uh, at least. Uh, less challenging. I wanted to do a 50,000 foot response on that too. And part of it is understanding that Texas has made choices about what kind of revenue structure we're gonna have and what kind of public services we're gonna have. That's right. And your grandma told you there's no free lunch and it's true. If, if we want to be the lowest taxing state in the country, then we're going to have to sacrifice something in the way of public services. And unfortunately, running a system that can take care of vulnerable kids and vulnerable elders uh, without burning out employees, you know, with an incredibly short period of time because they're taking care of so many horrific cases, 
that they're overwhelmed. Uh, to create a system like that is going to cost some money, and that's why these questions about protective services didn't start last year. Right. I mean, the entire time I've been doing this work, which is over 20 years, we've been talking about it. So I think it's really important, you know, one of the things, whatever point of advocacy we come from, whether it's mental health or some other issue, you have to understand how taxes and budgets affect that. And and if I'm, if I'm constantly advocating for more of X and Y, which Texas probably needs, um, I've got to also be willing to talk to my legislature about taxes. Yeah. Is it funded by Medicaid, though, yeah. as y'all like said? So how would you? I guess like. So, and, so, and where the rates are very, very poor. The rates are, so they're the also at risk. Stop doing their psychological yeah. uh, care for children in CPS because they didn't get paid enough. Yeah, those are that, those are exactly. Right. But let me say, let me give you a five foot view about the actual treatment. Because to actually treat, and I don't know what that young man had. I don't know what, I, have, I can't diagnose someone from the newspaper. But let's say that that's somebody who is potentially going to hurt somebody who's out of control behaviorally and really needs some intensive treatment. The, our Medicaid rules allow for that. Our Medicaid MCO is at risk and obligated to provide that treatment. But across Texas, and this is why it's going to take partnerships with communities, only one in 20 children who need that level of care would be able to find a provider eligible to provide it. So we need to jumpstart. We need to jumpstart provider capacity and get them in the game. But you can't jumpstart provider capacity. Lost Go track ahead. of him even after well, he was. Yeah, I agree. There's right, other right, things right. as well. And they like. You're right. right he right. was like but, labeled as someone who needed that care, as someone who needed supervision. I, I'm and sorry. They completely let him. I'm, the yeah. and I'm sorry to interrupt. We're about out of time. I just want to say thank you sorry. all for being here. It's a very I good question. Appreciate questions. the questions. You can't jump off the ladder.